Welcome to the Yale podcast on entrepreneurship, where we explore the dynamic world of innovation and business ventures fostered by Yale University, including students, faculty, alumni, and administration. I am Jessica Yu, and I'm here to explore the story behind Yale's burgeoning entrepreneurship scene for anyone who is curious and looking to get inspired. In today's episode, we have with us Dr. Ranji Bindra, a physician scientist at Yale Medical School, the Harvey and Kate Professor of Therapeutic Radiology, and the Scientific Director of the Yale Brain Tumor Center. He is an active biotech entrepreneur, having spun four companies out of his laboratory research, including Cybrexa Therapeutics, a Series B currently doing Phase two clinical trials. Hey, Dr. Bindra, thank you so much for joining the Yale podcast on entrepreneurship. You're doing a lot as a physician scientist and entrepreneur. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to share a bit about your background with us. Yeah, no, totally. So, yeah, so uh, really excited to be uh, on this episode. I'm a physician scientist at Yale. Eleventh uh, year into faculty, uh, did was an undergrad at Yale, ninety four to ninety eight, and uh, spent some time at the NCI after college, trying to figure out what I wanted to do, and then uh, was actually playing some music in a band. So that's uh, we come back to that later. But uh, sort of a lot of things are like rock and roll bands, but realized that wouldn't pay the bills. So end up doing my MD PhD program at Yale, two thousand to two thousand seven, uh, and um, went on to do my residency at Sloan Kettering. Uh, and uh, uh, residency postdoc and fellowship in radiation oncology, uh, joined the faculty here in 2012, uh, and uh, basically treat patients one day a week, uh, adult and pediatric brain tumors, uh, and um, as a radiation oncologist, and I do some radio surgery, co-director of the Brain Tumor Center here at Yale on the scientific side. I uh, then spend most of my time running a laboratory, uh, molecular biology, uh, focused on DNA repair and cancer metabolism, uh, and we're very interested in bench-to-bedside clinical trials um, sort of evenings and weekends relevant to this episode is I uh, really love starting companies, uh, co-founder of uh, four uh, companies, which we can get into later. My first one that I don't include because it was before faculty uh, started in medical school um, and uh, certainly can talk about any of those companies if there's interest. Yeah, that is so amazing. I feel like if I were to be just a scientist or just a doctor or just an entrepreneur, like my parents would be already proud of me, but you're juggling three. Like, that's amazing. I'm, I'm so curious. How do you balance your time between these three things? Yeah. Yeah, great question. I think um, I remember sort of being, you know, in undergrad and, and the postgrad uh, years. Kind of, I worked for the NCI director at the time uh, and uh, at the NIH, and you know, wondering how he balances so many things at the same time because I couldn't possibly balance more than just my project in the laboratory, uh, which was like a cell culture project. Uh, and I think you know, one of the biggest things is, you know, developing, um, you know, collaborative networks and teams and people that you work with. I think there's in no way uh, can anyone do uh, um, everything by themselves. That's one point. Uh, and part of that is learning to, um, in that team approaches, you know, you, you got to be in this for um, the higher level mission and kind of 
what you want to do, which is in our case, get better drugs for cancer patients. And it's not necessarily about the credit. Certainly we want to get some credit for what we do. Um, but some people get so concerned with being the person associated with it. So by being open to sharing the credit and sort of working collaboratively, you get more people to work on the team and we all work together kind of rowing in the same direction. Um, so along those lines, being able to delegate uh, some of your work and finding the right people to do the right things and then recognizing you're not going to be um, 100% master of each one of those things. I call myself jack of all trades, uh, master of none. And then the final thing I always mention is that you think of it uh, as not a, you know, not a sprint, but a marathon. And if you were to run a marathon today, not running ever before, you know, obviously you wouldn't make it very far, but it's a long-term training. And even now I'm learning how to balance multiple things. And so you start off taking on more and more things at the same time, getting comfortable with that learning from your mistakes and successes and then every year you kind of learn how to delegate and, and multi multitask better uh, if that makes sense so yeah speaking of delegating tasks like um how are you actively involved in your your many startups and how have you been able to find people to delegate certain tasks in terms of running the startups yeah, great question. So, so I think that um, you know my role and a, a lot of folks who are interested in entrepreneurship, if they're staying within the ivory tower within academia, uh, the way to think about it is um, you know a good example of what we've done is we typically make a discovery in the laboratory uh, and um, you know academic we really publish a paper uh, or mindful of making sure we protect it from an intellectual property perspective. And Yale Ventures here is really great at doing that and follow the patents around. Uh, new class of molecules or a new way to treat cancer. Uh, and then we try to get seed funding. In the case of you know Yale and the Connecticut ecosystem, we've got uh, folks like Connecticut Innovations and the Blavatnik program and other angel funding mechanisms where you can get 50 to 100K to 300 maybe even to kind of do some pilot studies that often will be in your laboratory if you're uh, if you're a student in, in your PI's laboratory or if you're a PI, it's your own laboratory. You generate the key preliminary data and then link up Again, getting back to that team and partnership, find, you know, an entrepreneur in residence, for instance, there's 70 of them here built by Jim Boyle here at uh, Yale, at the Blavatnik program and the EIR program. Link up with someone, convince them to work with you and you become partners and you do the science. For instance, if you don't know the business, that's better to have someone that does the business side and you work as a team. And then you kind of do what we call as a pitch deck and you put together some of your, you know, your academic publication, your initial discovery, some of your preliminary data that you got on the seed funding and you use that as sort of a way to go out on tour getting back to the band analogy kind of your first lp or your single that one song that you play so well, i'm going to do a record now you know you go out on a tour to kind of get your name out there and so it's a real we use that formula uh, for uh, my first company in graduate school called Helix Therapeutics, uh, but more recently, Cybrexa Therapeutics, we're now in phase two clinical trials and uh, Alfina Therapeutics uh, and Modify Bio, uh, and certainly happy to talk about any specific ones as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm so curious about that. So how do you know when it's time for you to translate your research into a company? Like, do you just know? Like, are there any signs? Yeah, great question. So now having done this a few times, you can kind of get a sense for uh, what what you can, you know, 
turn into a biotech um, because early on, like everything seems like a good idea. You learn from pitching and, and talking to investors and raising money and getting into clinical trials, you know, what's going to work and what's not going to work. I think early on, if you haven't done it before and uh, presumably folks in the, and in, in this uh, listening to this are, are trying to get into this more from an earlier stage is one of the best things is to a talk to people that have done it before. Um, and, you know, faculty members are often depending on the time of year and, and if they don't have a grant due are happy to sit down with people who are super motivated and want to, you know, put a couple slides together and present and, and are open to listening and um, will give their perspective. That's one, one thing to sort of, um, you know, get, get, acclimated. Another thing is Yale Ventures and the other um, groups on campus, um, like, you know, like your organization, I'm sure, you know, they host evening events, networking events, and panel discussions, and, and just listen. That's another way. And then Yale Ventures, Josh Cabell has really transformed uh, the program here, where you can talk to the tech transfer slash venture analyst associates and kind of run your ideas by them to kind of get a sense uh, of things. And then finally, even um, social media like Twitter, there's certain people you can follow in the, bio- follow in the biotech world. And then you can start reading Endpoints magazine and starting to learn about just like when you, you know, when we got into science or medicine, you know, you kind of read stories about stuff, companies, you can get corporate decks of companies. They're all available through you know, SEC websites uh, because they legally have to, you know, um, provide this material for investors. And then you can kind of get a sense for how do startups work, you know, and, and you can even take classes, the business school, for instance, they have an entrepreneurship class. You pull all that together. Uh, and that'll allow you to get a better sense, a, a smell for like what's going to be um, feasible to kind of translate. Hmm. So what is the story behind the first company you've started? How, how did you first get involved? Yeah. So uh, another good theme there is it's often right place at the right time, the first time at least. Uh, and our first company was Helix Therapeutics, was a gene targeting company uh, that we, um, you know, I was finishing up my graduate thesis in Peter Glazer's laboratory here at Yale. And um, I was just sort of working on random projects and I wasn't working on gene targeting, but he had a new way to target uh, um, induced mutations and correct mutations in the genome. Uh, this was well before CRISPR. So um, uh, certainly um, the modification frequencies were not as high as you get with CRISPR. Um, but he was actually pitching this as a company idea and he couldn't make a, a, it was the Y50K business plan competition. There's an equivalent now on campus, I believe. And, you know, um, academics pitched their idea for, you know, 50K in funding uh, and uh, he couldn't make the pitch. So he asked if I could do it. And for me, I was kind of like, oh, geez, I don't even know what a pitch is. I didn't even know. I thought you write a paper and that's it. And he said, well, here's the pitch deck. And looked at it and realized there was a whole different way. There's a way to write a paper, a way to do experiments, a way to run a clinical trial, but there's actually a way to pitch an idea. Uh, You know, what is the technology? What's the history behind it? What's the potential? What's the market opportunity? How much money do you need? And what will that money get you? Where will it get you to the next step? Um, and so sort of talked to a business school friend of mine and um, brought that person on because understanding that I can't do it myself. And the two of us kind of 
put the pitch together and we were able to um, eventually we didn't win the first year, but the second year got really into it and we're able to win uh, the competition. And then that kind of put us in touch with uh, a number of entrepreneurs in the area who then joined up with us. We we're able to really turn it into a company. Um, it was a great, you know, it lasted a few years. We raised about $6 million for the company. Uh, it didn't survive some of the financial uh, instability at the time in 2008, uh, 2007-ish timeline. And, um, you know, but we learned a lot from it. Uh, we learned about, you know, getting the right people at the company. Uh, you know, uh, you know, you need to get people that understand this is a startup. It's not a big pharma. It's not an academic center doing sort of science experiments. You need to move really fast and very focused and be very disciplined in, in the experiments you do and be very mindful of how much capital you burn over time. Uh, so learned a lot from that. And we're able to apply those lessons to the companies uh, that came after it. Yeah. So one of the companies that came after it, I've, I've heard the name before, Cybrexa. Um, yeah. I was wondering if in maybe like in simple terms, you could explain what this company does. Yeah. Yeah. So it comes down to that idea again of, you know, if there's an idea, you know, there's thousands of ideas that we'll all have as, as uh, trainees and faculty. And really only a fraction of those are going to be, you know, biotech compatible. And only a fraction of those will really succeed for a variety of reasons. And um, the core for us has always been um, the therapeutic index. Uh, how do you target normal, uh, spare normal tissue rather, and target tumor? Uh, and there are many ways to do that. And one way is we know that tumors have a low pH in the microenvironment because they're very metabolic and they're constantly burning energy and they tend to create um, low pH around them. And Don Engelman, a professor at Yale, developed technology and we were working on it as well at the time where the, a, a small peptide that he discovered that when it gets close to low pH membranes on cells, that the, the um, aspartate residues get protonated and the, the peptide actually forms a corkscrew and burrows into cells in a directional, C-terminal directional fashion. And we came up with an idea that, well, maybe we could use that to deliver um, anti-cancer payloads. Uh, and so you'd inject these into the patient, they the peptides would float around. When they got close to something that was low pH, for a variety of reasons, even normal tissues with low pH don't have it right at the normal cell membrane. It's the cancer cell membrane. Um, that peptide would burrow in and deliver um, this uh, payload. And so we were able to actually, based on some of the work we had done in our laboratory and the Glazer laboratory, Peter Glazer, my former uh, MD-PhD advisor, and I came together with some of the entrepreneurs, again, getting back to that team and the network that we'd worked with that Helix were still floating around. And we said, we sat over coffee and we said, well, we've got this idea. And they said, well, we've got some money. We've got about $5 million. Um, and we've got a CEO that want this coming off another company. And so we sketched it out kind of on a bunch of napkins. Um, you know, let's in-license the technology. Let's put chemotherapy onto the peptide. Uh, and let's, you know, map out what are the things we need to do over the next three years? Well, let's develop an in vivo model for tumors uh, that have low pH. Let's develop a peptide with a, you know, tool compound molecule or a chemotherapeutic. Let's tether them. Let's develop them and show in vivo, publish a paper uh, with a, at the time it was semi-virtual, but then we set up the company. Uh, and then we were able to really show that, you know, you inject the peptide, it sticks around in the, in the animal for a while. It doesn't go to normal tissue, doesn't go to bone marrow. It only drops the payload off in the cancer. And we could show that we could literally flatline tumors, um, publish that in, in AR cancer, um, 
and then started building up what we call a, a preclinical development team and we're able to develop the drug scale it up we're raised about 20 million more and i'm going very fast just because of the time but uh you know a lot a lot of work there you know we ended up building a lab from scratch a vivarium uh my lab manager for instance came in and built the vivarium at cyberexa again getting a trusted team member to do that work then we're able to drive it into clinical trials. And uh, for this company, it was awesome. And we had a lot, these companies have lots of ups and downs or constantly, I like to think of it as an airplane taking off 747 off the ground and sort of taxiing along the runway forever. You never know when it's going to take off and suddenly starts going really fast. And then there's a point of no return because you got to get off the ground. You got to get to 30,000 square, uh, 30,000 feet rather. Uh, and we had a lot of bumps in the road where we almost ran out of money or didn't think we could get our drug through and we're able to get cash infusion or pass a milestone. Uh, ultimately, that company uh, secured a, a deal with a company called Exalexis that secured a $700 million option deal on the lead asset. Uh, and so now we're hoping to start phase two clinical trials soon and uh, companies running on all cylinders, which is great. Wow, that's awesome. So what is your role in that company right now? Because I know Yale definitely has some like arrangements in terms of like ta- like the amount of time professors uh, or faculty members could dedicate to their startup. So how is it working for you right now? Yeah, yeah. And so what's great about, um, you know, most institutions, but Yale in particular, you know, they let faculty and uh, uh, to some extent trainees work about a day a week as consultants. Uh, uh, for trainees, it's obviously needs to be discussed in more detail with the um, uh, supervisors and whatnot. Um, but I, my typical role in these startups is I come in kind of on a leadership position for a year or two. And so for Cyberx, I kind of served as an interim chief scientific officer until we got a real CSO who came in and really took the company the next level, um, really spending a day a week there working with the biotech team and coordinating efforts with the academic lab, making sure we're integrated, making sure we're focused, uh, and really getting involved, making sure that we're not only thinking about the drug development, but we're thinking about the true science principles of what the company was founded on. And the evolution of a founder, um, you can really go one of two ways. You can either say, I'm going to start the company as an academic, and then I'm going to jump and take a leave of absence or leave entirely, which is totally fine, and become a member of that company. Uh, but there are pros and cons to that because then that's your only thing. Or you can kind of say, I'm going to be involved for a year or two. Then I'm going to be a little less involved in year three and four. And then year five, I'm just going to show up to the board meetings and meet with the C-suite from time to time. Uh, so the role kind of evolves. The natural life cycle is as a company becomes independent. Uh, the founders almost do need to step away. And that's where serial entrepreneurs like myself kind of go on to do uh, the next thing too, uh, which so that we can start the cycle kind of all over again. Yeah, so I I. I think that's so cool. What do you like in terms of being a faculty entrepreneur? Why why have you chosen this as opposed to another life just fully doing like business instead of being like a faculty member? Yeah, it's a great question. I think a lot of entrepreneurs and and struggle with this. And and one without naming names, I can say that many famous entrepreneurs on campus, uh, including myself, often have a soul searching moment of you know when do I do I jump? Do I go into the biotech world or or, or the startup world entirely because I feel like I'm distracted uh, with my academic day job? And um, I think what you have to do is kind of consider you know, the pros and cons and the risks and benefits. And um, if you're super super um, risk averse and you know, need job stability, you know, often um, academia, much like big pharma, will give you that security. Um, That's one component. I go sort of multifactorial decision-making. But if you also love the academic science stuff, because 
if you jump into one company, that has to be your main focus in life and you can't get distracted doing other things in most cases. Uh, you have to get your drug into phase one trials in a certain amount of time with a certain amount of capital, maybe build up the pipeline behind it, but you can't have a random idea that you think of uh, and then pursue it. In academia, the benefit of academia is if you come up with a new idea tomorrow that's totally unrelated to anything you're doing, you can write a grant, get it funded, and kind of go down that, take your lab in that different direction. Uh, and so along those lines, if you like to kind of have a lot of different things all running at different um, speeds and stages of development, and you like to teach and mentor trainees, uh, and also if you're a physician, you like to treat patients, um, staying within that realm may be better suited. But if your sole purpose is I want to have a huge exit, make a ton of money and see that drug get in the clinic, you may be better suited and then go to the next company. Cause it's not like, you know, if that company falls apart, you have to go back to academia. You can always jump to the next company. Um, but everyone's a little bit different. And often you really have to ask yourself, you know, at the high level, what is it that, you know, you wake up in the morning that, you know, gets you out of bed to, to kind of do stuff. But the theme is whatever you choose to do in life, you have to do it over and over again. So even in academia, it's coming up with new ideas, but you always got to come up with new ideas. You can't just have one idea because you won't be able to stay competitive in the academic world either. Wow, that is actually so relatable because as like a rising sophomore undergrad, I have been doing a lot, a lot of soul searching. Um, so I'm very curious, how did you end up knowing that, you know, becoming a physician scientist and also an entrepreneur was the right one for you? How did you come from someone who's like in my position, maybe as an undergrad to where you are right now? Yeah, yeah. No, I actually, as at Yale, I was Trumbull 98. I had no idea. Freshman year, I was doing, you know, chemistry classes and I was going to be a chemist because my dad was a chemist. And uh, then I realized I didn't really like organic chemistry that much and I still don't. And my dad was very good at it, but I just didn't inherit the gene. And, but I've learned to have collaborators like Seth Herzon and on campus that do the chemistry and I do the DNA repair. Uh, and then I got into music. I was in a couple big bands in college and was actually more focused on trying to hit it big there. Then at the last minute, I realized that maybe I should go to medical school, but then realized I didn't really want to treat patients every day. I love patient interactions, but not as a so things. And then started to realize I kind of like to do a little bit of everything. The theme is, is, you know, before I think in undergrad, it's easy to feel a rush that by senior year, I have to have figured it out. And especially this generation and era is like, you got to go, go, go. You know, there's a lot more time, you know, you know, in your thirties, you're not that old, even though it seems like that sounds like a big age, um, you know, taking two years off, um, you know, to figure these things out for me, it was going to the NCI and realizing that there was some such a thing as an MD PhD where you could actually see patients one day a week and be in a lab the rest of the week and maybe even do startups. Um, but the theme of all that is not making snap decisions, not basing it just on talking to your peers who also may not know that much, but going and doing a summer rotation in a laboratory, going and trying to find a shattering opportunity in a clinic. And then if you're still really not sure, don't rush into it, take two years off and do one year at the NIH or one year working as a tech in a translational lab where you might be able to shadow. We have a couple postdocs here that every now and then shadow in my clinic so they can see what happens to the clinic and all the time reaching out to faculty members for coffee and, and, and going to events 
and just absorbing it. Cause you know, these four years, the best time it's really meant not to have the answer by senior year. It's more meant to get the data, uh, uh, by life experiences, real world experiences to then make that decision sometime after college over those coming years. Noted, you know, personally, I'm, I'm planning on majoring in biology and thinking about like what I want to do after undergrad is like a big headache. Like I'm thinking, is it MD? Is it PhD? Is it MD PhD? Like, in the end, you committed to becoming a physician scientist. That's like a really big commitment. So like how, what, what, what helped you realize that? And, and what, why do you think becoming a physician scientist has become is like such a special thing for you? Yeah, I think for me, it's, you know, if you derive a lot of pleasure out of doing work in the lab and then seeing patients that have the disease you're treating and then knowing that the work in the lab is... Um, you know, translating medicine is a, is an art and a science. It's a fabulous profession, but it is very much cookie cutter in many different ways. There's a lot of creativity, but there's confines or standards of care that you have to treat patients and ways that you need to do things. In the scientific world, though, it's you can do whatever you want as long as you practice the scientific method, follow hypothesis-driven research or not hypothesis-driven research. You just come up with ideas and then let the the biology lead you or follow the biology as we can say our motto in the academic lab is you can't stop uh you can't stop biology and um you know because it just is the pursuit of science which is truth um and so for me you know it was the path but a barrier to that path was it's a seven to eight year program and you know at the time i was like oh i can't do that i'm going to be too old when i come out and it was my father who not alive now but he had died of cancer uh interestingly and um but he had told me you know don't be so focused on, you know, the time because you're going to have lots of time, you know, you'll have decades, hopefully longer than me, you know, uh, he died at about 60, but you know, you've got your thirties and your forties. And so understanding that a seven, eight year program coming out at the age 30 and doing residency and finishing up at 35 sounds like a death sentence. Uh, but you put in that time and you walk out with enormous flexibility versus rushing and say, well, I've got to go to med school. I got to do residency. I got to become a surgeon. I think understanding that drag out that window, that timeline that you have and realizing that there's a decade, a chapter in each decade, your thirties, your forties, your fifties, your sixties, uh, maybe even your seventies. Um, very hard to see that. But when you talk to faculty members, you'll hear that because it's easy to get caught up when you're in your twenties that you've got to define time to, to figure out what you want to do. Yeah, that is, that is very wise. So I would love to hear more wise words. I'm, I'm wondering what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned founding your companies? Yeah, I think the biggest lesson is uh, a lot of lessons is it it is a lifelong learning process. Um, You'll, you know, a pitch deck is a living deck, Um, you know, just like science. There'll never be a point where you're like, okay, I figured this out. Each one of my companies, we have new struggles that we did encounter in the last company. Um, It's an incredibly rewarding but frustrating and difficult process because, You're constantly questioning yourself. Those imposter syndrome comments or thoughts always pervade through all aspects of career. Because you're constantly feeling like you don't know enough, uh, and that you you know you need to reach out to peers and mentors and advisors. And I think big lesson is to find mentors that are lifelong less mentors. Folks, for me, Kevin Rakin, a longtime business partner, I've known him, worked with him, starting companies um, for almost 20 years now, and um, you know having those mentors. 
advisors along the way and keeping those relationships uh, because, you know, you're not going to be able to know all the answers and your peers can tell you some things, but you're going to hear a lot of stuff from people that's not it's not true. And I always tell people, you don't want one mentor in life. You want like a board of advisors, just like a board of directors of the company. Companies do not have one board of director member. They have five, six, sometimes 10 or 12 because everyone brings their own insight. And then you take all of that insight and combine it and find the pieces that are most relevant Um, because not everyone's going to be right. Um, And so I think by getting that, you know, a broad based sampling, you can kind of find the right path forward. So, Yeah, that's really wholesome. So finally, on an ending note, I just wanted to ask, how did the Yale community support you on your journey? Like I've heard of Yale Ventures. It mustn't have been easy getting into entrepreneurship. Yeah, this is something that, you know, Josh Cavell and others at Yale Ventures have really been doing a great job of Jim Boyle and whatnot. There are a number of programs that for entrepreneurs, um, and I'd say for the undergrads, don't be frustrated because it gets hard to crack this area. And I know there's a go, go, go mentality and whatnot. And it's going to take years of, um, you know, just jumping on and being a fly in the wall or being part of a project. And the resources here are enormous. There's the Size City program. There's the biotech uh, societies run by the undergrads, like the programs that that you're you're, you're involved with. Uh, the Blavatnik program, the Yale Ventures themselves have events, the business school, um, the, lots of networking sessions, and then just a very vibrant entrepreneurial community supported by Connecticut Innovations, Advanced CT, uh, and really just the ecosystem of companies around here doing internships at these that have a New Haven presence, Osas Ventures and Canaan are folks you can go to their website and even cold email some of those folks and they will often reach out. Um, very, very rich ecosystem here. Um, you know, I'd say, un, you know, just on the level of Stanford and, and Boston and, and other places, I think we're really gaining momentum. Uh, 101 College now uh, developing such a huge presence uh, and opportunities to connect. So, yeah. Wow, that, that, that really gets me excited. Thank you so much, Dr. Bindra, for sharing your experiences, your amazing journey as a physician, scientist, and entrepreneur. I feel like I've learned a lot and I can't wait to share this.